And it's really a privilege to be able to come and be with all of you today. And I was telling Michael earlier, I, I get the Grace Church e-letter when it comes out every week. And so I received the one that came out this week. And I'm looking at it, and it said something about Michael Birchfield, interim senior pastor at Grace Bible Church. And I thought, whoa, and I call my wife, hey, come look at this. Um, and I know that Michael and the other elders have talked to you, the congregation, about partnership with West Hills and how we're going to focus over the next year. And so it wasn't a surprise, and yet it was interesting to see it in print. And so uh, having said that, I'll say this, it is a privilege to be able to come and minister to this congregation and help and serve in any way possible. Uh, I just want to tell you a couple of things. One is a roadmap about messages uh, that are going to happen week to week. And then the other has to do with some working together with the elders. Uh, we're going to start a series in First John this morning. So we'll be studying the letter of First John for quite a number of weeks. Um, as I talked with your elders though, about what they felt might be beneficial to you, the congregation, we settled on kind of a plan, at least for the initial weeks. And so what we're going to do for a little while is that I'll preach from First John one Sunday and then the next Sunday give an overview of one of the Gospels. And so I'll preach from First John this morning. It'll be an overview and then next Sunday, give an overview of a gospel, and then back to 1 John, and then another overview until we get through the overview of the book of Acts. And the reason for that is because we've got folks here that have been Christians for many, 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 many years, and then my understanding is that there are others here that aren't very familiar with Scripture and stuff like that, so we're going to try to meet the needs of both of those groups, at least initially and then we'll continue through 1 John and then go on from 1 John to 2 John and then to 3 John. And so that's where we're going to be barring special Sundays for, well, I don't know how many Sundays, but it'll be a while. So that's one thing I wanted to share. Another thing is that I'll begin to meet with the elders on Monday mornings at 7 o'clock. And we're going to be working together through some material called Biblical Eldership. It was written by a brother named Alexander Strauch. He serves a church back in Colorado, and it's a very popular material to help elders of churches become more equipped to shepherd the flock of God that is in their midst. And so that starts tomorrow, and I'll come down and meet with them starting tomorrow. I'll do that through the end of October, but then I have to go back to Morgan Hill right after that study time is over, but starting the first part of November, I'm going to hang around here in Hollister at least until noon, and so if anybody would like to get together and let me buy you coffee or talk or whatever, um, there'll be some opportunity for that, okay? So with that, let's go to the Lord. We want to ask him to bless our time. We're going to do an overview of First John this morning, and so let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you that in the same way churches all across our state are gathering together this morning for the express purpose of worshiping you through your Son, by your Spirit, so this congregation is gathered together to do the same, 
We want to thank you for waking us all up this morning. We want to thank you for the breath that's in our lungs, the life that's in our bodies. And for those of us that are Christians, we want to thank you for the eternal life that's ours in Jesus Christ. We thank you that we could sing praises to you. We thank you for all the songs we've just sung, but especially that last one about how there's victory in Jesus. And we pray that the truths of those songs you would be making reality in all of our lives as we attempt to live for Christ and represent him in the midst of a confused and dark world. And Father, we also have the privilege of opening your word and studying it and being fed from it. Our prayer is that you would do just that, that as we give an overview of this letter of 1 John, that you would encourage people with what's going to be said. Uh, We've come together. Uh, We don't know one another's hearts for the most part, but you know every one of us in an intimate way. You know us better even than we know ourselves. And so we pray that as we work through this message this morning, you would use what's going to be spoken to speak to the hearts of your people. Minister to us, those of us that belong to you. I pray as well that if there are any here who don't belong to you through faith in Christ, that your spirit would make that evident to them and that this might be the day that they surrender and trust your son, Jesus Christ, so that they can come to have a relationship with you, so that they can have their sins completely forgiven so that they will receive the gift of eternal life. Now, Father, I pray, bless as I attempted to speak this morning. And may what I say glorify you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, we're going to be in 1 John. And so if you've got a copy of the Bible, you might want to turn to 1 John in the New Testament. If you happen not to know your way around the New Testament very well, Uh, The best thing to do is go to the contents and find where 1 John is. Uh, It's in the second part of the Bible. It's almost toward the end. And while you're turning there, I'm going to go ahead and get started. Um, As I have interacted with people who identify as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, over the many years that I've been a Christian, and as I have followed Jesus myself for a number of years, I've noticed that there is a common challenge to faith that arises periodically in some Christians' lives, and some believers find themselves plagued with that challenge uh, quite often. And I can tell you what that challenge is by posing it as a question. It's common for some to ask, how can I be sure I am a Christian? that I am actually saved from sin and secure in Christ? Very common question. I've been a Christian now for about 50 years. Sometimes I still ask myself that question. And so if you're a young believer and you ask yourself that question, don't feel insecure about it. It's a challenge that faces us all. It's a common question And it often appears in the form of doubts. We just find ourselves doubting our standing with God. And that happens for various reasons. Let me me share with you just three. There are more reasons than these three, but these are big reasons. Here's the first reason. When a person first becomes a Christian, 
they realized that Jesus is the Lord and that he came from heaven and lived and died and rose again from the dead. And they come to realize that through faith in him, they can be forgiven for all their sins and come to have eternal life. And so, having heard the gospel and become convinced that Jesus is the Lord and that he did die for them, even them, they put their faith in Christ and they become Christians. They come into this place where they can confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord. They believe in their hearts that God raised him from the dead. That's good. That's how all of us become Christians. Process may differ, but the end result is the same. We become believers in Christ. We become Christians. But then they face a problem. On the one hand, sin has been forgiven. But on the other hand, did you still sin after you became a Christian? Why is that? What's up with that? Why do I do that? And that can become a source of doubt. We ask ourselves, if I am a true Christian, why do I still sin? And that stems from a lack of understanding about what fully happens in the whole scope of salvation. When we believe we are justified by faith, that is, we're declared righteous and we're delivered from sin's penalty, but there's a process whereby God, by the Spirit, begins to deliver, deliver us from sin's power. That's called sanctification. And if we don't understand that we are going to be sanctified, then we can get hung up by the fact that we still have sin in our lives and we may doubt. Here's a second reason. The second reason is that some people are naturally insecure by nature. And individual insecurities... Um, if you're a person that's naturally secure by nature, you are for many and various reasons. And I don't have time to go into the reasons behind that, but there are generally things in your life that contribute to your insecurities, uh, your uncertainty about things like that. And if you're naturally insecure in human relationships, then insecurity will very naturally characterize your relationship with God. Why is that? Well, if I'm insecure in the presence of people I can see, how much the more might that translate in regards to a relationship with a person that I have never seen and a Christ that I've never seen, you get the picture. You get the picture. This is then projected onto God and that's due to a lack of understanding sometimes of God's promises. And it might be that our insecurity causes our faith to be weaker than we might perceive other people's faith is. And so we can find ourselves doubting as a result of that. Here's a third reason. Some struggle maintaining assurance that they are truly Christians, that they truly belong to Christ as a result of some false teaching that comes along and begins to impact their lives after they've come to know Jesus Christ and begun to walk with him. Let me give you a couple of examples of that. Uh, when that happens, they may find themselves asking, I know I trusted Christ back here, but did I do it right? Was enough involved for me to be a true Christian? Uh, a couple of examples from Scripture. If you go back to Acts chapter 15, you'll read 
in the first verse about how after this group of Christians in Galatia had become Christians after they were born again, they put their faith in Christ through the preaching of Paul and Barnabas, some men from Jerusalem came down into their midst and they said, hey, listen, I know you've trusted Christ as your Savior, but have you been circumcised? And of course, being non-Jews, they would say no. And then the next statement would be, listen, unless you're circumcised, you can't be saved. That's Acts 15.1, where these Pharisaic new believers in Christ came down and said, if you're not circumcised after the manner of Moses, you can't be saved. Now, that's a false teaching. That's adding something to the gospel of free grace. And the 15th chapter of Acts gives us the account of Paul and Barnabas and others going to Jerusalem and debating it out. But if you fall victim to that kind of false teaching, it can cause you to have some doubts. Um, Here's a second um, source of that. Those that have come from a sacramental background will often wrestle with assurance if they fail to keep the sacraments. Do you know what I'm talking about here? For those of you who don't, let me give you a context. There are churches that are known as sacramental. Anybody that came out of a Roman Catholic background knows what a sacramental church is. And so what do sacramentalists say must be done to have and maintain salvation? You have to experience the first sacrament which was infant baptism most likely, or baptism if you became a Catholic after you become adult. And then there are six more sacraments that follow that. And the way you maintain your salvation is to keep all those sacraments until you die. And the final act of the church is what? Extreme unction? And if you are sacramental, you're going to maintain your salvation. That's not true. There aren't seven sacraments. Jesus only gave us two. Do you know what they are? Say that again. You're absolutely right. Two sacraments, the Lord's Supper and baptism, and neither baptism nor the Lord's Supper saves us. Only Jesus saves a sinful soul. And baptism is public testimony that our soul has been saved. And the Lord's Supper is a covenant meal that we partake in, acknowledging that we belong to Christ and we become members of the new covenant. Those are the New Testament sacraments. And so, if you came out of a sacramental background, or you're not a believer, and that's the most familiarity that you have, um, it's going to trip you up in your faith, um, or may prevent you from coming to full faith in Christ. So those are three reasons why some Christians struggle with doubts about their security in Christ. And so then the question is, how can a Christian be absolutely sure that they are Christians, that they belong to Christ, and that they're secure in Christ? How does a person come into that state? What can we do as Christians to avoid or overcome our doubts.
It takes more than someone saying, God said it, you should believe it, and if you do, that settles it. Because a lot of times that, that this doesn't work. You believe the gospel because God said it, and you come to have eternal life, but then you have these doubts. You follow me? That's a problem. How can we be absolutely sure that we belong to Christ and are truly Christians? And because that challenge is really, really common among us, and because it was also common among Christians of the first century, the Bible actually addresses those very questions and addresses those questions very, very clearly. Um, and that's what 1 John is all about. That's what 1 John is all about. Now, 1 John was written by the Apostle John. He's called by himself in John, the Gospel of John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was one of Jesus' inner circle guys. And that particular John wrote five books in the New Testament. The Gospel of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and then there's one other New Testament book that he wrote. Does anybody know what it is? It's the Revelation. So those five books were attributed to the Apostle John. He was the author. And he wrote 1 John. And the theme of 1 John is personal assurance of genuine salvation. Now, how do I know that? So if you've got your Bible open to chapter 1, I want you to flip over to chapter 5 really quickly. I'm going to read 1 John 5, 11 through 13. Here's what it says. And for those of you that are following along, I'm reading from the New American Standard Version of the Bible. So if you've got the English Standard Version or the New King James, it's going to differ a little bit. And if you're in the NASB, also known as the NASB, then you'll be following word for word. Here is what John wrote in chapter 5, starting in verse 11. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. And then look at verse 13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Everything written prior to 1 John 5, 13 was written so that Christians might know that they have eternal life. This little five-chapter letter is the letter of assurance. It was given to us so that we would have assurance of our salvation. And interestingly, these verses are one of the internal evidences that 1 John, even though it doesn't have John's name tacked to it, was written by John the Apostle. And there's a parallel verse in the Gospel of John that I want you to look at. And so look back to John's Gospel really quick. If you look back to John's Gospel and you find your way to the 20th chapter, um, you're going to find a parallel verse. It doesn't parallel word for word, but it does parallel. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Here's what those verses say. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. 
One of the characteristics of John's writing was in the gospel, at the end of the gospel, he gave his readers the reason he wrote. And in 1 John, at the end of 1 John, he gave his readers the reason he wrote. That's an internal evidence for authorship. Both the gospel of John and 1 John, the writer tells us why he wrote the book. Now, there's another internal evidence that John the Apostle wrote 1 John in the gospel, and that's due to the parallel opening statements. I want to point these out to you before we move on. And so go back to 1 John chapter 1. Listen to these words, the opening verses of this little letter. John writes this, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. And if you read verse 3 and 4, you know he's talking about Jesus Christ. So that's how John opened his first letter. Now, how did he open the gospel? He opened the gospel of John with these words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And then he goes on. And if you read further down around the fifth verse of John, chapter 1, John says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shined in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. If you compare those passages, you see the parallel. John started his gospel talking about the word of life. He starts 1 John talking about the word of life. Why? Because it's the same author with the same focus. And so that's John 1, 1 and 2, and 1 John 1, 1 to 2. So 1 John then was written by John the Apostle, and he wrote his first letter so that you may know that you have eternal life. So look, if you're a person that sometimes has doubts about your salvation, or you find yourself tracked in the quagmire of questioning whether you have truly been born again or not, then this little letter is designed to help you settle that question in your heart. It's designed to help you answer for yourself before the Lord prayerfully the question about whether you're a Christian. Now, it also is applicable to those who are not. So if you find yourself sitting in here today and... You think you're Christian, but you're really not. Guess what this little book's going to do? It's going to reveal to you the truth about yourself in a most painful way. Just like a doctor has to give you most painful news before he can point you or she can point you to a cure. So that's what 1 John does. What this means, as I said, is that if you want to be absolutely sure of your salvation in Christ, drink deeply and prayerfully from this little letter of 1 John. So how did John go about addressing the topic of the assurance of salvation? Well, he did so in two ways. I'm only going to cover one of those ways with you this morning, but I'll give you both of them. The first approach that he does, and this is found throughout the book, is that he teaches us sure evidences of saving grace. 
he lays down sure evidences of saving grace, or put another way, he points us to tangible evidences of salvation that will be present in the life of any person who has been born again by the Spirit of God. Maturity will determine the level that each of these evidences exist in your life, but they will be in the life of believers in seed form or in growing form if a person is born again. So that's the first thing that John did. He taught sure evidences of saving grace. Now here's the second. As we move through 1 John, we see that John also confronts false teachings, common in his day as they are in our day. And in his day, they were shaking the confidence of believers. And so those false teachings are confronted in this little letter. I'm not going to get into that this morning. And so what are the sure evidences of salvation that are present in this little five-chapter book? Where are they found? Well, he gives nine. He gives nine. I'm going to summarize them. And then as we move through the book, we'll get into each of them in more detail. So, first of all, a true Christian is a person who knows Christ by faith. That's found in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. A true Christian is a person who knows Christ by faith. They recognize that Jesus is the word of life, and they've believed on him. That's the first evidence. And anybody that's a Christian will say, yeah, well, that's where I started. That's where John starts. Here's a second. If a person has truly been born again by God's Spirit, then they're going to be honest about their personal sinfulness. A true Christian has an honest view of their personal sinfulness before God. They're not in denial They're not sweeping it under the table or the carpet. They're not undone by it because Jesus paid the price. But they have an honest view of their personal sinfulness. Now that's in chapter 1, verse 5 through 10. Let me read you a couple of representative verses. Verse 6, if we say that we have fellowship with him, I'm a Christian, I've got fellowship with God through Jesus Christ, and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. That's an evidence. He goes on in that little section. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. And so the second evidence is a Christian has an honest view of their personal sin. Third evidence. Jump over to chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. Chapter 2, verse 3 through 6 says this. By this we know that we have come to know him. You see how that would give assurance? If I want to come to know him, then I can know that I've come to know him by this, and that this is what follows. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. How does that fit with the gospel of grace? Obedience is never legalism. Now, file that in the back of your brain. Obedience to Christ is never legalism, ever. 
Obedience to Christ is the natural outflow of a heart in love with God through Christ. And so that's an evidence. Uh, verse 4, the one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Now that's really, really shining the light in your eyes, isn't it? But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner that he walked. And so the third evidence is a hunger and love for God's word, and that is manifested through obedience to Christ. Here's the fourth, love for the family of faith and other believers. Love for the family of faith and other believers. Now, we need to tune into this. Look at chapter 2, verse 9. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. How's your love life toward other people that name the name of Christ? That's an evidence of true faith. A true believer gravitates to other believers and if a person's not truly saved, they really kind of don't like other Christians. Let me tolerate them. That's as far as it goes. Sorry about that. Let me give you a few more. Uh, number five. A true believer is a person that avoids loving the world. Christ calls us to fall out of love with the world and in love with God the Father. And when we're not in Christ, we stay in love with the world. Where is that talked about? Verses 15 to 17. Do not love the world, neither the things that are in the world, because everything that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Now, I skipped one line in that 15th verse. Let me give you the whole verse. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So this is an evidence that people can use to gauge their faith in Christ. Um, a true believer avoids love for the world. Uh, sixthly, um, a true believer has an ability to comprehend the word of truth. 1 Corinthians 2.14 actually says that the natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, neither can he know them, because they're spiritually discerned. And then it goes on to say in the 15th verse, but he who is spiritual knows all things, discerns all things, right? And so John picks up the same theme in chapter 2, 20 and 21. You have an anointing from the Holy One and you know all these things. I've not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it and because no lie is of the truth. And so a true believer has the ability to comprehend the word, not in its entirety. You know, the Bible is an interesting book. <clears throat> the Bible is like the drop of pond water that we used to look at in high school biology, right? Here's what I mean. You can drop a drop of pond water on a slide, and if you're looking through a microscope at the weakest power, you might see a few things in the water but as you click, 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 and the microscope goes through its various powers, 
It's almost like you're looking through layers of water and you can see more and more and more microscopic organisms. Did any of you experience that in biology? Some of you are smiling and some of you said, well, I didn't take biology, so that's cool. <laughs> Talk to the ones who did, okay? <laughs> but that's what the word of God is. It's simple enough for a child to comprehend and it's so complex that the most intelligent triple PhD in the world can't understand all of its truths. But all believers understand some of it from the basics. Let me give you three more. A true believer continues to grow in grace. If you look at chapter 3, 3, and 4, you'll see that. Number eight, uh, a true believer is from time to time and sometimes a lot of times going to receive resistance from the world. Resistance from the world. And we're entering a time in the United States where more and more, if you're out as a follower of Jesus, you're going to receive more resistance from the world that doesn't like Christians because of what we believe and what we stand for. That's number eight. And here's number nine. Uh, confidence in prayer. Confidence in prayer. Chapter 5, verse 14 and 15 talks about confidence in prayer. And so these are evidences of being a true believer in Christ. And so if you drink deeply, prayerfully from 1 John, if you're a person that struggles with doubts, you can come to have deep, deep, deep assurance and be absolutely sure that you belong to Christ. Now, why did John take this approach? With this, I'll be closed. Because in the same way that a baby born shows signs of life, so people born of the Spirit of God always, always, always show signs of life. It's inevitable. It's inevitable. And the Scripture writers communicate the concept in various ways, which I'll cover at another time. And so how do you apply this? Well, first of all, if you know someone struggling with assurance and you know 1 John, you can actually counsel them toward assurance using 1 John. And if you know other believers who don't attend here, but you know that they struggle with their assurance of salvation, on the one hand, we don't want to steal people from other churches. But on the other hand, you might invite a friend of yours who struggles with assurance of their salvation to come at least for this series so that they can achieve assurance and be absolutely sure that they belong to Christ and their joy will be full. So that's one way that we can apply this. Second, if you are struggling with assurance of your salvation or want to guard against doing so, then over the days and weeks and months ahead, pay close attention and prayerful attention to the lessons that are here as you self-examine. Go deeper with God. Let him speak to you. Let him wash your mind, wash your heart, and whisper assurance to your soul by the Holy Spirit. And one place to start is that beginning this afternoon or tomorrow, start reading through 1 John. It's only five chapters. doesn't take long. Start reading through 1 John. The more ahead of time reading you do, and the more you think on the text, the more the Holy Spirit can reveal to you and use in your life as we move forward. Here's a third 
application. There may be someone you know who professes that they identify as Christians, but they live in the opposite way. And you're just not sure what to say or how to assess. I come across folks like that periodically as a pastor. And so on the one hand, you're not to judge. On the other hand, you can expect fruit. Care must be taken here because Christ is finally the judge of any and all people regarding whether they belong to him or not. But if a person close to you doesn't manifest the type of evidence is revealed in 1 John, it enables you to pray for them very accurately. And it's hard for you to judge a person negatively if you're praying for them positively and regularly and you want their best interest. But it also helps you to speak with them truthfully. To speak with them truthfully. And sometimes... We have opportunity to do just that. And so that's a little bit of an overview of 1 John. We're going to start next week in the first four verses, and then we'll move forward from... No, I contradicted what I said earlier. What I'm going to do next week is give you an overview of one of the Gospels and show you how it ties into 1 John. And then week after next, Lord willing, we'll go through 1 John 1, 1 through 4. And may our Lord bless our study. In 1 John, may he build up this congregation. And what I mean by build up is that he builds all of you up that are believers in your faith, making you strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. As a result of that, gospel witness spreads and may other people come to know Jesus. Let's all pray together. And then we'll segue and celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that... We were able to be together today, and we thank you that we could just look at an overview of this little short letter that John, the apostle, wrote. We pray now that you would be sealing this to our hearts, helping us grow in it, build up your people in their most holy faith, call those who are not your people to become so. We ask that you would do a great work in the midst of this congregation. As we study this book, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.